Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The word spirituality and soul is going to mean lots of different things to lots of different people, and I think that's okay. But I think we, we all know the direction it points. Those words point to something greater than our ordinary worries and concerns. At least, you know, I mm. often think spirituality is just about connection. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today we welcome Eric Zimmer to the show. Eric works as a behavior coach and has done so for the past 20 years. He has coached hundreds of people from around the world on how to make significant life changes that serve them well in achieving the goals they've set for themselves. He also hosts the award-winning podcast, The One You Feed. With over 30 million downloads, the show features conversations with experts across many fields of study about how to create a life that is less suffering and more fulfillment and meaning. His story and his work has been featured in the media, including TEDx, Mind Body Green, Elephant Journal, the BBC, and Brain Pickings. In this episode, I talked to Eric Zimmer about how to have a meaningful engagement with life. When we feel connected to what matters, it becomes easier to create an action plan that gets us moving in the right direction. At times, our emotions can get in the way, but Eric believes that focusing on behavior changes can help us retrain our thoughts while leading us to our desired outcomes. Eric combines principles from religion, philosophy, and psychology to give us tips on how we can live out our values more mindfully day by day. We also touch on the topics of spirituality, agency, self-love, addiction, and emotions. I really enjoyed chatting with Eric. He's such a thoughtful, deep, spiritual, emotional, authentic human being. Those are the words that immediately come to my mind when I think about my chat with Eric. It was a real pleasure to chat with him. I really recommend listening to this episode and also having a listen to his own podcast, which is really great. So without further ado, I bring you Eric Zimmer. Eric Zimmer, thanks for appearing on the Psychology Podcast. Thanks, Scott. I am uh, really excited to be here. I don't listen to many podcasts. Uh, I don't know if a podcaster is allowed to admit that. I don't listen to a lot of them, but yours is one of the few that, that I do listen to. So it's a, it's a real honor to be here. Well, you're certainly allowed to admit that to me. <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. Thanks, Eric. Um, really appreciate that. 
Um, you know how they go sometimes they're like doctor, doctor, we could be like podcast host, podcast host. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, it's really great to finally get you on the show. We have lots, lots to talk about. Um, you, uh, well, you wear a number of hats, really, let's be mm -hmm. honest. Um, one hat that I thought was really interesting is that you're a behavior coach. I'm really yeah. interested in the coaching profession and it just fascinates me. I was, so I'd, I'd actually like to start off by hearing when you, when you first got interested in the, the profession of coaching and, and why, and what is a behavior coach? Yeah. So a couple of years into doing the podcast, this would be about probably six years ago, I was asked by listeners of the show, do you ever do any coaching? And I said, my first couple of responses were, no, I don't. And then, you know, after I got asked a few times, I thought, well, you know, I, I like talking to people. I like working with people. Maybe I'll try it. So I, I did it a couple times and I almost immediately realized that I had done this so many times before sponsoring people in 12-step programs. I realized like, oh, I've done this hundreds of times for free and I always loved it. It was one of my favorite parts of recovery was sponsoring other people, helping other people find their way and, and make changes in their lives just has always brought me a great deal of joy. So um, that's kind of how I got interested. And once I started doing it, like I said, I realized like, oh, I've done this before. I really like it. And I think I'm pretty good at it. And so that's, that, that's kind of how I got started. A behavior coach is, the reason I use that term is that I feel like by Focusing on behavior is a really, it's the easiest lever, I think, to pull to make changes in our quality of life. And interestingly, behavior leads us into emotions pretty consistently. So the main reason if people aren't doing something that they say they want to do, it's either they, they don't have a good plan. So they haven't thought about when they're going to do it. They're not specific about it. The, the challenge they're taking on isn't right sized. They haven't thought about the other commitments in their life. Very tactical things. And so it's really satisfying just to work with people and be like, all right, let's eliminate, let's fix those things. And for some people, boom, they, they're, they're right off and going. The other reason we don't do the things that we say we want to do, at least my opinion, is once we've taken care of the tactical, is emotional regulation. Our emotions get in the way. When it comes time to do whatever the thing is, we have some emotion around it, whether it's, uh, I'm afraid, I'm too tired, I don't see the point, you know, hopelessness or, and so, so behavior then brings us right up to those. And it gives us a chance to say, what were you feeling right in that moment? Let's zoom in. And so by starting with behavior, A, we, we know that there's a lot of things that just changing behavior helps right like if you if you have fear of something and you stop avoiding it and you do yeah. it you, you you've taken care of the fear to a certain degree um so that's why you know i call myself uh, a behavior coach i love that uh and i i, I love also you know just the whole idea of um experiential avoidance the opposite of experiential avoidance being what life is all about and some people yes. call it psychological flexibility no one's come up with a, a term for the opposite of experiential avoidance that i really that real, that I really love. I don't know if psychological flexibility is the ultimate term in terms I'd of probably for not. me. Yeah, meaningful yeah. engagement, maybe. I don't know. Mm, mm. Active, yeah, active, meaningful engagement. Yeah, something, something. But yes, but that's what you're talking about, and that seems to be core to your your program. 
Um, I really like the behavioral activation approach. And I was wondering to what extent you bring that into your coaching work. And that it requires an understanding that sometimes if you act the way you want to be, your brain will follow. Yeah. Even if you don't physically want to or mentally want to do the thing, you're too, you're terrified of it. Um, You can actually act first and then let everything else catch up after that. Yeah, the phrase that I may have uttered on my podcast more than any other is sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. And I heard that nice. early in my in my uh, recovery, you know, when I was 24 and, and recovering from, from heroin addiction. It became very clear that if, if I let my brain tell me, if I let my brain do what it said it wanted to do, we knew what the results were, right? Homeless, about to go to jail for a long time weighed 100 pounds with with hepatitis. I mean, I was very, yeah, I was not well. And that's what just following what my brain said I should do. Recovery was the opposite. It said, it doesn't matter whether you want to go to a meeting today or not, go. It, you know, it, you take the action and, and the, 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 as you said, the, the, the feelings will follow. Now that doesn't happen in every case. You can't constantly act your way into everything. But it's a pretty good place to start on a lot of things. You know, it, it's a pretty good indicator for, for a whole lot of things is to just, you know, decide what's important to you and, you know, make that decision from, and we could use, you and I talked the other day about this, we could use a hundred words for this, but from your higher self, what's important to you, decide that, and then do your best just to follow that plan, you know? Yeah. Um, sometimes the plans don't go as you, as you want them to go, though. And no, they as, sure you know, as you know, <laughs> um, and sometimes even if you engage meaningfully in something, it can still fail on you. You know, there's no guarantee that, uh, that, uh, your fear will, um, that your worst fears won't come about, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, I know that I'm not sounding super positive all of a sudden, but I'm saying like, <laughs> like somebody's I'm real, nervous want... about an upcoming move, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you can have the fear. And you can be like, okay, I'm going to go for it. And then you go for it. And then it all, it, 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 the worst case scenario does happen. Yep. You know, what do you do then? You know, do you say like, oh, I should have stayed in the fear forever. What do you do with that? Well, I, I have always felt better about trying and not succeeding than being afraid to try. Yeah. I've used this example before, and, and I think you've, you, you've referenced something like it, right? Which is, you know, okay, so you're a, you're a single male and you want, to, you want to date someone, right? I just used to be terrified of that when I was younger. Luckily, now I'm in a long-term partnership. I don't have to think about it anymore. But, but when I was younger, I would be terrified of it. Mm-hmm. But the point would finally come where it felt worse to be... Uh, I, don't, I, I don't. I don't love this word. I'll just use it because it's the first one that comes to mind. To be ashamed of myself for mm. my fear that felt worse mm. than what the fear of rejection was. And I mm. maybe this is just thinking through it, but I am a whole lot more comfortable with going. You know what? The things out in the world didn't do what I wanted them to do, and you know what? That's just the way it is. That happens to everybody. Versus, I didn't do what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I had a solar energy company before this podcast. I poured my heart and my soul into it and it failed. You know, 
a lot of the things were completely beyond my control. They were government government decisions about alternative energy plans and subsidies and all this stuff. And so it failed. But at the end of the day, I, if I could, I certainly would not erase that five years because I went for it and I tried. And that felt yeah. good. And at the end of it, I went, okay, I feel good about myself. I feel good about the effort. I feel good about what I tried to do. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm disappointed. Mm. Yeah, it sucks to have this not succeed. Yeah, I have to work with my brain when it starts to say, you're such a failure. And go, mm. okay, well, hold on. Let's, let's, not, <laughs> let's, not, let's not take a failure and generalize it out to your entire being. Um, but so that's kind of what I do is, is I just reflect on like, well, it makes me think of the serenity prayer, right? We, we talk about this and I, I keep bringing up early recovery lessons, but the serenity prayer, right? What can I control? What can't I? I can't control what happens after I take an action. I can control whether I take the action and I can control to some degree how well I do it. And, and if, I'm, if I'm living that way going, all right, things that I can't control, I'm going to let go of. Things that I can, I'm going to try and you know, act on. That's how I deal with you know, your fear comes true. It's like, well, yep, okay, it didn't work. Nice. Not nice. Nope. N-O-I-C-E. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like yeah, it. boy. I like it. But like, it, it seems like so much of what you're talking about is you, you have the events that happens to you, and then you have how you react to the event. Now, there are so many extra layers that a lot of us put on um, of like labeling. Um, oh, well, this means I'm a loser. This means, and, and then the idea, and then the shame is like such a big one for, for people who have addiction issues, right? Like they add so many layers of extra shame on themselves. And none of this is really helping themselves. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying, I think that's like a really common theme among a lot of the work you do yeah. is kind of um, re retraining the way your thought yeah. patterns are when you, when you react to setbacks. And I listened to a podcast you did recently saw so was interviewing you on their podcast and you talked about how you thought self-love could be a really important uh for the prevention of of depression and um and even a treatment and I, I was wondering if you could talk more about how we can get you from a mindset of oh i'm a loser you know i have so much shame for what i did to giving yourself more self-love that seems like a really important transformation to me yeah and and it can be it can be a long one, right? I, I don't want to make it sound like this is a, a, a simple thing to do. And it's, it's a big question. Yeah. And, and there were two, there were two pieces in there. The first was like, you know, wh how do we, how do we interpret the events that occur yeah. in our lives? Right. And then the second is how am I, how am I kinder to myself? Mm. But there's a, you know, the phrase that's used a lot is self-compassion. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a good phrase. I love the work of Kristen Neff. You know, we've interviewed her a few times. I think she's, she's brilliant. We also interviewed somebody by the name of Dr. Aziz Gazapura, and he had a book called On Your Own Side. And I love that phrasing of it. You know, be on your own side. And so if you think about how you might, if, like if, something, if something happens to someone you love, Ideally, you're on their side. And so you're mm. going to, if the interpretation of what happened to them, let's just say it's, it's you, could, you could have a positive interpretation, you could have a negative interpretation. With your friend, you're going to want to lead them towards the positive because you care about them, right? I'm not saying make stuff up that's not true. I'm just saying that there's, we, we, you know, our interpretation is, is open mm. to interpretation. And so we would lead them 
towards the positive. And so I think mm. doing the same thing for ourselves, you know, why not, if I'm making the story up anyway mm. about what this means, because that's what we do, we're meaning making machines. If I'm making it up, why not make it up in a way that is kind and positive towards myself? You know, and then the other one is, um, my other favorite way of phrasing this is be a friend to yourself. And I, you know, I, I got that from Kristen Neff. But the reason I like that one so much is because we, we intuitively understand it. How do you treat a friend, right? Yeah. And none of us would talk to our friends the way we talk to ourselves. No. no. Right? You wouldn't have any friends. Unless um, you're a narcissist. And then the way you talk to yourself is I'm superior to others. That, okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so in which case you don't need, you probably may not, may not, yes. this, this section may not be helpful for you. But, yeah. and, and the other reason that talk to yourself like you would a friend, I think is really helpful is I actually think that imaginative exercise is helpful. Mm. Let me yeah. imagine that my friend was going through what I'm going through. What would yes. I say to them? How would I react to them? Because there's something, I don't remember who, who identified it, but they call it Solomon's paradox. And Solomon's paradox says, you know, King Solomon, wise King Solomon, people traveled from around the world to get his advice. He was so wise, right? But apparently in his own life, he was kind of a disaster area. And so Solomon's paradox is we can be incredibly wise to people around us, but it's hard to do for ourselves. So taking that idea of let me be a friend to myself, let me think about what I would do for a friend and then do it for myself is a, is a way around that a little bit. And then I think the final thing is just, you know, can I... Can I work on changing the tone in which I speak to myself, right? A lot of people think self-compassion or self-love is about, you know, letting yourself off the hook for everything or not taking accountability. That's not it. But there is a way when you're not living up to your own standards, values, expectations, there's a way of talking to yourself and trying to hold yourself accountable in a kind way. Yeah. The, the research on self-talk is so awesome and yeah. important. And, and valuable. And um, I'm sure you make contact with the psychological literature. You seem like a really curious person who's always open to learning new things. I'm sure you you see some of this research and this is so exciting, so exciting and, and important. Yeah, I, I noticed that the way that we uh, treat ourselves really does influence the perception of other people on who we are, especially <laughs> at first meeting. Like at first meeting, you know, that people have basically no information to go on about who you are and uh, what they're dealing with. And if you exude a sense of like confidence, you know, and like you walk into the room with a sense of people will tend to treat you like you're a kind the kind of person mm -hmm. who deserves respect to have confidence, right? If you walk in the room and you're like, oh, I'm such a loser. Uh, people are going to reject me everywhere. People gotta look at you and reject you. <laughs> so, I'm talking about this is the way humans yeah. are, yeah. whether we yeah. like it or not. Yeah. Whether we like it or not, this is the way humans are. And so again, apply like combining like behavioral activation approaches with self-talk approaches. You know, you 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 can really transform a human as you are doing, and as you're seeing. You know, it's it's really uh this this stuff really this stuff is really transformative. Yeah, I mean, there is no doubt. I mean, I, I, I'm always interested in how much can people change yeah. and, you know, to what degree are the circumstances of their lives. And I, by circumstance, I mean the, the thing that their environments they're in, the people who parented them, how they were parented, their genetics, all those things. Like, yeah. you know, when you apply all that to somebody's life, how much actual choice do they have? 
Yeah. You know, and, and it's a it's an interesting and debatable question, but ultimately it's not a question that is incredibly useful yeah. because we don't know how much we yeah. can change. I can look at myself and I, I, I've shared this a couple of times, but I had an experience, it was probably last last summer, maybe, maybe the summer before, I don't remember. But my mother had fallen and had had, had a bad injury and she needed, she was prescribed narcotics and I was going to the pharmacy and picking up her narcotics and delivering them to her. And all of a sudden it hit me one day that like, not only had I not wanted to take them, hmm. I hadn't even thought about it. It wow. just didn't occur to me. And there was a time where I probably would have robbed you at gunpoint for what I was carrying in that bag. And that's, now, that's 25 years later, so I'm not saying this happened immediately, it happened quickly, it, but, but if that level of change is possible, then it does say, like, we, these things do work if we keep applying them, if we keep trying, you know? It was just a moment for me of really seeing, like, how far I'd come and going, like, wow, that's kind of incredible. Like, I never would have thought I would get that far from my yeah. addiction. I was and just I'm not saying that. my addiction is gone, I'm not saying it couldn't come back, I'm just saying... Yeah. Whatever I've been doing, it, it has kept it pretty well at, at bay. Just going to ask you that, you know, there was probably a time in your life when you couldn't even imagine a world where this stuff wouldn't control you yep. it, it, internally. And I think that's so important to tell people, give them hope. You know, um, what, what you're saying to me is giving me chills. Um, uh, you know, it's so important to, to, for people to realize that no matter how controlled they are by their demons that it, it it can reduce over time that that intensity where they feel like they're being controlled yeah and i think that's a really important point particularly when it comes to addiction because a lot of people when they start stepping into even tentatively the waters of sobriety or recovery yeah. feel worse mm. and so so what I often say to people, don't confuse what getting sober, don't confuse getting sober with being sober. Getting sober mm. is a pretty miserable process. Mm. I often have stayed sober simply on the fact of like, I don't ever want to go through that again. Simply don't ever want to have to be in my first 30, 60 days of sobriety ever again. Because mm. it was miserable mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, yeah. That is not my experience now. And so it is, I think one of the promises of recovery is not only can you stop using this thing, this thing that has its grip in your soul all the time will let yes. go. Oh, wow. That is so, oh, whew. can we double click on this idea of gripping your soul? There, uh. it, 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 that has a lot of meaning to me, that phrase, that phrase has a lot of meaning to me. And I think it, it really relates to all this amazing work you're doing on spirituality. You know, you, um, you have a program that's even called Spiritual Habits. And can we connect this idea of gripping the soul with spirituality? Because it seems to me like a big part of spirituality is being able to get into this transcendent state of consciousness that is more expansive, that is more open to new possibilities and isn't, and, and, and even soulful soulful dare i say you know mm -hmm. so this idea of gripping the soul it, it, it's such a powerful uh just few words can, can you just double click on it with me and link it to spirituality sure i mean the word spirituality and soul is going to mean lots of different things to lots of different people and i think that's okay but i think we 
we all know the direction it points. And it, those words point to something greater than our ordinary worries and concerns. At least, you know, I mm. often think spirituality is just about connection, connecting to what matters. What matters to you is going to be different than what matters to me. But for me, that spirituality is about that connection. And for some people, that might be connecting to God as they understand them. For other people, it might be connecting to nature, to their family. It might be, be a lot of different things. So, and, and soul, you know, again, we could debate, do we have a soul? Do we not have a soul? Is it everlasting? Is it eternal? I don't know. It's not that important, it, at least to me, right? It's interesting yeah. to think about and talk about, but it uh -huh. doesn't necessarily change my behavior. It doesn't change uh -huh. what I want because I know the direction that idea is pointing towards. It's uh -huh. pointing towards more connection. You know, early on in AA, there was a line that AA said, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem. And that's worded slightly harshly. And I, 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 a lot of people react to that negatively. But there was, there was an idea that came after that that talked about being relieved of the bondage of self. That line lit something up inside me that I have, has been at the heart of my spiritual journey ever since. How do I be relieved of the bondage of self? And the yeah. bondage of self is just that I just think about myself and what I want and what I don't want all the time. It occupies center stage constantly in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so spirituality for me to a large degree is just how do I decenter that a little bit? And what I decenter it to could be, be very different. So spiritual habits then is a program I developed to bring together sort of two of my core interests, which is how do we create lasting behavioral change habits and, you know, spirituality. And because what I observed and, and, you know, you talk about this a lot is it's one thing to know this stuff, but to, to live it is, a, is what we're after and living it is difficult to do. So I thought, what if we could take, what if I could just take some course, you know, spiritual principles, but you could honestly probably call them philosophical or psychological principles if you wanted to. Some core principles that underlie all traditions that I've seen out there, you know, that are in most philosophical schools, that are in most religions, these core principles. And then what if I could marry that with what we know about behavior change and habit creation? And we could then try and find ways to live our spiritual life in more of the moments of our lives. Some of us get to the point where we meditate every morning. And that's a really good thing. Lots of people find that even difficult to get to. But let's say we do that, or we have 15 minutes of contemplation or, or writing. or So we, we've carved out this little space that's really great and it's important. But then when that's over, we don't think about any of those concepts or ideas again until the next morning because we're just so busy. So how can we, without having to carve more time out, because none of us have more time, how can we live these things a little bit more in the moments? And so that's the problem I, I'm trying to solve in spiritual habits. Yeah, I love that. And you also use some language just to say you want to help people be more grounded, loving, strengthening, and creative, at least increase those experiences. Yeah. Those sound like things that belong in a, in, under the umbrella of spirituality. Yeah. They seem like they belong. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Um, I, I, there's something I wanted to just riff with you on because uh, this idea of the victimhood mentality is prominent. Uh, actually just 
recorded an episode with Dr. Phil yesterday on this topic of the victimhood okay. mentality. And and you st- you talk about your your struggles that you had. You know, you were homeless at 24. You know, you were addicted to heroin, right? So you you've talked to, you've talked about your struggles. Do you do you view yourself as a victim? Do, like, is that part of your identity? Like, where what does that mean to you? Um, the, the the that idea of the victimhood mentality, and and where are you at with that? No, I I don't. I don't see myself as a victim. Um, right. You know, are there were there things that occurred in my life, and and uh, things that happened? You know, things that I was given maybe via genetics and all that 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 made it much more likely I was going to become an alcoholic or addict. Of course, like yeah, they did, and I still did it. You know, and um, I think this is an interesting point because, boy, th- this is such a big topic, right? You get into victimhood, you start getting into questions of privilege. You start getting into mm. questions of social equality. I'll give you an example. When I got arrested at 24 for five different felonies, mm. I, as an upper middle class white kid, was given what's known as diversion, mm. which meant that I had to plead guilty to all those felonies. I had to do community service. I had to be drug tested for something like five years. I had to go to treatment. I had to do all these things. But if I did those things, those felonies would be thrown away. When I went through a six-month treatment program, I can tell you most of the people did not have anywhere near the advantages I did as far as the education I was given, getting deals like that from the government. Like the, so I was treated differently. And it allowed me to perhaps recover in ways that that others didn't have the same opportunity. So I do think there are different, we are treated differently and and oftentimes in ways that aren't fair. The problem with the victim mentality, though, is that we're the only ones that can change our lives. And, And if why I am the way I am is a is solely a function of what's out there i'm screwed Uh. because i can't i mean i can participate in changing the systems that are out there but i'm not going to single-handedly change them and so but i can single-handedly although i believe within community and with lots of help but with the effort for myself i can change myself and so you know I see people get stuck oftentimes on this question in one of two places. When I was in early recovery, the AA groups that I was with were were very anti-psychology to a certain extent. So what they said was, it doesn't matter what your parents were like. It doesn't matter how they parented you. It doesn't, you are an alcoholic. You are responsible for that. That is, in, in my mind, that was a little bit too far to one extreme. Because although I'm not going to blame my parents, there are ways and things that they did that we know impact the person I am today. And if I want those impacts to stop, I have to work with that material. So it's, it's this idea of we are not, the way I like to think of it is we are not at fault often for where we find ourselves, but we are 100% responsible for any change that we want to come. 
And so there are plenty of people who have been victimized by the world. Let's just think of a woman who's been been raped. Like, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing to have happened. You are a victim of a of an awful crime. Uh, you know, if you've been sexually abused, you're a victim of an awful crime. Uh, but the bad news is that no one's going to come clean that up for you. And until we start, at least for me, until we start to take a really sort of radical responsibility for our own healing, we can get really stuck in the victim piece. But there are, I, I do believe there's a place to be really angry at what happened to us, to be really sad and grieve what happened to us. I'm not saying like that those aren't real feelings that need dealt with. But when it comes to agency, the victim mentality, I think, can really stay, keep us out of our own agency. At the same time, I fully recognize this world victimizes lots of people. <laughs> you know, as you and I are having this conversation, there are things that would make our, you know, our, our, our soul clench up happening to people right this very second, you know, that we can only describe as like they're being victimized. But yeah, so that's my thinking. It's really nuanced. And oh, I yeah. think like a lot of topics, if you get on too far on one extreme of that or the other, then you're, it, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. And it tends, you, you get into arguments between, you're, is there a victim? Is there not a victim? You get into arguments that don't help anyone. Yeah. I agree that the extremes are not helpful. I, I think there is such a thing as toxic agency. Oh, Which say is more. The, yeah, the idea that um, you see you see on uh, Instagram, you know, videos of people being like, "No matter what happens to me, like I can do it. I can handle it. I got this." You know, like you you can do anything you put your mind to. You know that kind of attitude. You can put anything you put your mind to. So I think toxic agency is ignoring that. Well, the environment and support structures do matter. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, you can I, have that extreme. Yeah, totally. And, and I think the, the way I would, I would think about that or the way I would say that when I say agency is not talking about how far you can go, what you can change, what you simply that no one can do it for you, but you, you know, no one can make the, the healing happen in your life except you. You've got right. to be the engine of that. And if you're not the engine of it, then it's not going to happen. And that isn't really fair. What would be fair is if you were victimized, someone came, whoever victimized you came along and helped you heal. I obviously, it couldn't be the same person, but there would be some karmic balance. Yeah. Oh, I was victimized, but now I get an equal amount of free support back from the universe. And, but it doesn't work that way, you know? And so, but uh, I agree there, the toxic agency, toxic positivity, you know, to uh, ignore the very real things that are, that our environments, our socioeconomic status, our genetics, the way we are parented, those things are all very real. And very real. we have to take them into account in our, in our, in our healing and in what we expect from other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love what you're saying. And, um, it, it seems related to what you talk about is the, the middle way. Um, as being uh, such such an important thread running through lots of ways of dealing with with life and its atrocities and challenges, um, can you talk a little more about how you apply the middle way? Or what is the middle way, and how do you apply it in your own life? Yeah, I mean, the middle way is an idea that has shown up 
through lots of, um, you know, philosophical and spiritual traditions for a long time. You know, I, I won't, I won't attribute the right people to the right things. Right. But, you know, there was, I think, was it Aristotle or Plato's goal idea of the golden mean, you know, um, yeah. the, the temple at Delphi said, you know, nothing in excess on it. The term middle way came to me through Buddhism and it, it, it meant, it, it spoke to the fact that the Buddha, you know, the story goes was this really rich prince and he lived that way of life. I'm, I'm, I'm condensing greatly. He lived that way of life, didn't satisfy him. So then he thought, I'm going to go to the other extreme and I'm going to live in the forest and I'm going to eat one grain of rice a day. And, you know, I'm going to put myself through all these really torturous practices. And that didn't do it either. And it was when he accepted a meal from a kind woman, um, signifying sort of the middle way between those two extremes that then he found enlightenment. So that's where that particular term, the middle way, at least uh, my understanding has come. But I just think there are so many places in life that the middle way can be really valuable, right? You know, we, in behavioral coaching, you know, one thing I see all the time with people is either they do it 100% or they do it 0%. That's not realistic, right? None of us is right. going to do anything 100% of the time. So if that's our mindset, we're, we're stuck. You know, I think you could talk about the middle way between optimism and pessimism, right? About finding, you know, a, a realistic view. If you're, if you're hopelessly pessimistic, that's, that's no good. If you're hopelessly optimistic, that's no good. You know, we just talked about the middle way between, you know, thinking that uh, our circumstances have no effect on us or they have all effect on us right Mm. it's the middle way so there are so many places where i think this shows up um it's a real it's a it's a thing that i love you know it's something i really love and have found to be very helpful in my life you know there's um you know, uh, uh, between being too easy on ourselves and too hard on ourselves, you know, some, some people just let themselves off the hook for any behavior. Other people beat themselves up for, you know, um, breathing, you know, there's, there's a middle ground there. That just might be the title of our episode, the middle way Yeah, with Eric Zimmer, because it just seems like that's like everything we're talking about today. We're like, oh, well, toxic positivity can go in one too much in one direction or, you know, um, yeah, so it just, yeah. that just seems like it cuts through so much of, of what you do. Yeah, one of my favorite stories it concerns this spiritual teacher, uh, the forest monk Ajahn Chah. And he was asked by someone, they said, what? I don't understand. You tell one student this, and you tell another student this other thing. And he says, look, my job is to keep people on the path. If I see somebody on the edge of the road on the right, and they're about to fall into the ditch to the right, I say, go left, go left. If they're on the left and they're about to fall into the ditch to the left, I say, go right, go right, you know? So I think so much of, you know, for for people who are listening to this and Uh, and people like you and I who are really interested in these ideas and read studies and read books, we do have to apply a lens of, well, does that make sense for me? And what is my tendency? Do I have a tendency to go too much this way or that way. That'll just give me a, a general sense of where I want to think about, you know, overcorrecting or, or, or not where I want to think about correcting, you know, what, what direction generally might I want to go? 
it's a great uh, North Star goal. Um, me personally, I'm uh, I like I'm a man of extremes. Ooh. And so I find that I, on average, I live the middle way, but that's only because extreme opposites uh, average out. Yeah. In my well, life. That, that, is that okay? Is that okay? I, I think it can be. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm a Zen student and in, in Zen, you know, we talk about emptiness and form. Those are kind of the, uh, and we say they're the same thing. Emptiness being just everything all at once or the great void of potentiality and form being everything. And so those are two pretty opposite things. And yet we say emptiness is form, form is emptiness. We're marrying the opposite. So yes, I do think sometimes the middle way is holding to par- holding a paradox. Mm. It seems like it's, it, should either, it should either be this or that, but it looks like it's both. That's a paradox. A paradox to me is, is middle way. And so it's similar to what you're saying. Yeah. You know, it's not that I don't think it's that you always are are mediocre and boring, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, if you if you're able to hold the middle way by one extreme over here, one extreme over there, and it generally balances out, great. Mm. You know, my my extremism never had a counterbalance. It wasn't like I was three days a week uh, shooting heroin and three days a week going to the gym and drinking green shakes, right? Like maybe if I'd done that, I would have been able to keep the whole game up longer right Uh mine was you know burn the house down so so yeah i think that um there's lots of ways to find the middle way and it's not always just um you know find the middle between two points yeah i like that but some yeah some extremes can can really overtake the whole system and 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 really aren't productive um you talk about the emotional storm model of feelings, sensations, thoughts, behavior, and situations. Can you talk a little bit more about that model? Yeah, I don't think... um, It's the idea that what we tend to say when we get hit by strong emotions, we might just say, I'm angry. But really, there's a lot going on in there, right? There is a... Uh, there is an, uh, there are bodily sensations that go along with that. There is the, 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 what feels like anger. There's all my thought patterns. I hate him. He did this. Why did he do that again? Right. There's the situation, what actually caused it. That's not irrelevant, right? It is relevant. And then almost always there's some, you know, a lot of people say emotions uh, evolve to urge us to behavior, to get us to do things. So almost always in one of those moments, there is a, urge to do something. I'm going to yell at him. I'm going to scream at him. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm, I'm done working for today. I'm going to play solitaire the rest of the afternoon, whatever it is. And so if we can take that one thing that feels overwhelming, anger, and we can deconstruct it a little bit into those pieces, then I think that can help us, can help us have an opportunity of dealing with it more skillfully it gives us uh, multiple places to intervene. Do I want to intervene behaviorally? Like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do that thing, or I'm going to do this other thing that's good. Do I want to intervene cognitively? Do I need to think about, am I engaging in a cognitive bias that's causing me to see it? Do I want to engage um, somatically? Do I need to calm my... So it gives me options and allows me to see it. And so the reason I call it a storm is because a storm is, a storm is made up of like thunder, lightning, wind rain you know it's all it's all of it comes together and we're like well that's a bad storm but if you can tweeze it apart 
And then I think also just the very act of tweezing it apart, trying to figure all that out helps. Unless we're, if we're too emotionally overwhelmed, we, we can't do that. But it is a way of beginning to try and bring some more words and, and granularity to what's happening. Is that your phrase, the emotional storm model? Is that your model? Yeah. Well, nice. Nice. Okay. Um, so, we, got psych- um, we got non-psychologists doing psychology out here, Scott. Yeah, I was you gotta, gonna say, better watch out. You created a model. <laughs> you created a psychological model. <laughs> I'd be curious what you think, though. I like it. I like it. It, it, it obviously relates to things that exist in psychology, other yeah. concepts, but it, it's very intuitive to me and I can immediately grasp what you're saying and, 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 and correlate to that feeling of being overwhelmed uh, by my emotions, um, having it control me as opposed to me feeling in control. Um, I can really relate to it. Very relatable. And uh, I think sometimes that's what matters the most when it comes to, to helping people. Yeah, it's certainly not. Uh, like the the basic idea is 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 not original, right? It just was a way of trying to put well, it nothing together. Nothing is really. I, yeah. yeah. I, I can I ask you a question? No. No. Okay. All right. Of course, my friend. Anything. I've been thinking about, but, but the thought that's been rumbling around my mind in a while is: Are thoughts and emotions truly separate things? You know, we never see, we, we tend to never see one without the other, right? They, they tend to co-arise. And I, I, I do think there's some, some ways that we can talk about them as being separate. And, that, and, and obviously, I'm talking about trying to think of them separately for this model. But I just really have been, rum, you know, it's been rumbling around my mind. Like, are we really talking about two different things? Or are we talking about a one thing that always arises that has different dimensions? And maybe that's just semantic, but it's been on my mind. Yeah, that that's a a, a, a a an alleyway that uh, if we go down that alleyway, we'll we'll be talking for hours. Um, All right, Lisa Lisa Feldman. I I consult. I I, ha, I recommend people listen to my episode, Lisa Feldman Barrett, on emotions. I I think in a lot of ways she would probably say that uh, they're they're more intertwined than people realize. Yeah, um, feelings is something else. But emotions, feelings and emotions aren't the same thing. That's why right. the, these level of nuances. But that when you get to the level of emotions, it is deeply intertwined with our labels that we put yep. on the feelings. Yep. Yeah, we've had Lisa on a couple times. Her work is fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't yep. it awesome? Yep. Yeah, she's but really I think good. that relates. Yep. It relates to, totally. to this. And uh, yeah. Okay, so creativity and spirituality, that linkage, super yeah. interesting linkage. Um, where do you get your, your creative, um, where's the wellspring of creativity for you in your life? Does it come from spirituality? No, not necessarily. I would more say that when something creative occurs in my life, it feels spiritual to me. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I play guitar. I used to write songs. I still, oh, I still nice. write music. All the music in our episodes is all written by either Chris or I and performed by us. Um, and so the, if let's say I sit down and I pick up my guitar and five minutes later, I have a little piece of music. Something yeah. occurred in there. Now, my ego wants to say, Eric's such a good musician. Look what he came up with. But yeah. when, if I'm really honest, I have no idea how that occurs. I don't understand where 
that came from. I, I certainly, I can't replicate it consistently. You know, now that's not to say that practice and, and showing up and trying doesn't help, but, but I'm saying the actual process where something new emerges is deeply mysterious to me. Mm. And it feels to me like it feels spiritual. And when I look at the universe, it seems to me one of the fundamental characteristics of the universe is just this wild desire to create. You know, I mean, there are, there are, there are estimates that there have been up to, you know, in the history of the world, you know, somewhere on the order of six billion different species. That's a lot of different things. That's a lot of, you know, looks Nail. to me creative, right? Uh, you know, something emerging from something else, something new emerging, which is, you know, and so when I'm being creative, it feels to me spiritual. I feel like I'm connected to something mysterious and, and bigger than me that I don't understand. So I would say more, that's more the, the link. The other interesting link is if you start to look at mystical experiences uh, as they're described, and you were to, I did this recently for a talk I gave, you were to pull out some of the, the, the characteristics of a mystical experience and you pull out the characteristics of a flow experience, you can map them almost exactly to each other, right? Wow. They're, they're not, not completely, but there's a lot of overlap there. There's a lot of overlap between what people consider being connected to the deepest source of things, what their experience is, and what psychologists would describe as flow. There's a lot of mm -hmm. overlap there. And so mm. that also, you know, gives me this sense that, that there is, that creativity is uh, spiritual. And I'm reading, I'm going to do an interview shortly after you and I talked with a gentleman by the name of Matthew Fox. He's a, a, a long time, he was a Roman Catholic priest. Basically, they kicked him out for his her heretical ideas. Um, but he studied all the mystics over time. He's, he does, he's involved in something called uh, creation spirituality. And he talks about sort of four spiritual paths, but one of the fundamental ones is creativity, you know, art as prayer, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think there is, there is a, there can be a link there um, if people want to find it, you know, if, if you want to go, if you want to look that way. Um, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. And then spirituality is not the same thing as religious. No. Yeah. Yeah. Important distinction there. Yeah, so a lot of this really seems to be helping people be more present in whatever they're creating or doing. You know, you're, this seems to be a theme that you're really interested in, and the flow experience and um, the mystical experience. I view it on a continuum. Like in my book, Transcend, I have a oneness continuum. Mm -hmm. Flow is not the same thing as a mystical experience, but they're both on a transcendent experience continuum. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a... Um, uh, the mystical experience is one that uh, most people would go their entire lives with, without having one yeah. mystical experience. But for those that do experience it, it's it's a level of an, of oneness and present moment awareness that that is just so expansive. I mean, it's like one of all humans that have ever lived. You're not just that currently live, but of all time, you just feel like in, in touch with something, some source. Of something yeah yeah i've had a couple of them uh and via non-psychedelic means and um the you know they are um yeah they they are um it's pretty it was pretty amazing you know it was pretty incredible
I think the, you know, my primary spiritual tradition these days is Zen. And, you know, Zen is very, of all the Buddhist traditions, Zen is the most focused on that. They focus so much on what they call Kensho, awakening. It's that thing. Right. But, but what they recognize is the vast, vast majority of people are not going to have an experience like that and live out of that consciousness the rest of their life. So the Zen path then becomes about deepening, clarifying that experience. Um, and, um, you know, there's a spiritual teacher out there, Adi Ashanti, who I was talking to and I was asking him about this because I was like, I, I had this incredible experience. And in that moment, like everything that normally concerns me seems completely irrelevant, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but it's, I don't feel that way now. And he had a line that has meant so much to me. He said, devote yourself to whatever remains of it. I really love that because it says, how would I act and behave if what I saw then was true? And it seemed like it was very true at the time. So if I believe that's true, how do I act? And so now we're kind of back a little bit where we started, you know, I don't feel it. I don't feel that oneness, but I saw it. I experienced it. So if I believe that that's an aspect of reality, then what actions would I take? If I believed that Uh, and that can act as a real orienting, you know, concept, it's, it's a value like any other, right? We, we choose our values based on what we believe to be most true. Well, one other hat you wear is that you're a certified interfaith spiritual director. And, uh, how do you bring all these principles that you're talking about right now into that work you do there? Yeah. I mean, spiritual direction work is, is. It's interesting work because it is extraordinarily, um, whereas coaching tends to be very much uh, direction and goal focused, spiritual direction is kind of the opposite, right? It's just, but yeah, I mean, it's really just holding a place for people, giving them time and a place to reflect on what's most important to them and, and how, how they're doing with with living that. And, um, you know, we know that in most spiritual traditions, that community is a big, big piece. You know, in Buddhism, we talk about the Sangha being so important. Um, but Christianity has got the congregation, the church, the, you know, I mean, it, it, and so spiritual direction, I think, is a, is a way of being in community with somebody else who's on the path. It evolved out of the Catholic church in that what they were looking for was people to have someone to share their spiritual life with and talk about who is not in a position of authority. So you could go talk to your, your local priest, but there's a, there's, an, there's a power differential there. There's an authority differential there. That person's been vested with all these powers, right? A spiritual director in the Catholic Church, they, the person was not vested with any power. They were another person on the journey like you who had some skills and tools for helping you reflect a little bit more deeply. And so that's, that's what, you know, um, what spiritual direction is. And I was just interested in seeing it in, uh, I've been profoundly interfaith for as long as I can remember. So I was like, well, mm-hmm. you know, like I, 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 I think that, so it was really about, you know, how would you, how would you talk about spirituality, uh, with people of different traditions, yeah. you know? And being able to honor their tradition without trying to be like, well, that's not my tradition, you know, it's like, 
So some yeah. of it was learning, you know, how you to do spiritual direction, but a lot of it was also, you know, understanding the, some of the core spiritual concepts between all uh, the underlying all these different traditions. Yeah. This is the harkens back. Uh, this relates to what I was saying earlier about how a lot of these principles we're talking about today, um, they transcend a specific religion. Yeah. You know, this is different than religion. This is, we're talking about experience, spiritual experiences, which are not necessarily the same thing as they're not the same thing as religious beliefs. So yeah. Yeah. Um, Eric, um, I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. I, I'm so glad we finally got this interview in there. You in, in, I'm so glad we got this interview in the can. Um, you strike me as someone who is so committed to growth. It's it's really um, really inspiring to me. You know, you're you're someone who um, has had hardships and still has hardships, but you you really exemplify what I talk about when I talk about the importance of choosing growth again and again and again you know and avoiding the fear response again and again and again so thanks so much for coming to my podcast and inspiring my listeners as well as me thank you so much scott i i really enjoyed it Mm, me too thanks for listening to this episode of the psychology podcast If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.